Reg Livermore is one of our greatest showmen, a trailblazer whose career has encompassed roles as playwright, performer, presenter and one of the country's finest actors. His artistry is iconic and his pioneer performances in a succession of one-man masterpieces birthed characters such as Betty Blockbuster and Vaseline Amyl Nitrate. Such personas perfectly entwined risque and social sensibilities and cheekily unsettled and aroused an awakening Australian audience. Reviewing the seductive and thrilling content of his 1979 production of Sacred Cow, playwright Dorothy Hewitt described Livermore as everyone's nightmare and everyone's dream. Reviews don't come more succinct than that. He grew up in a conservative 1950s Sydney when boys who danced or acted were not like other boys. It's a career of peaks and troughs, thrills and spills. The performer has not only seized opportunities, but created them. Unbelievably, Reg Livermore has recently become an octogenarian. Our rich theatre heritage is just that because of his countless contributions on stage and off. He has offered us a chance to laugh at ourselves, embrace the mischievous and be changed by reverberant and authentic performances. Um, how long have you been in Baradu? Twelve years, coming up. Yeah, right. yeah. And... Uh, uh, yeah, well, I wish, wish, we, wish we could come here many years before we did because it's a great place to live, the area. And the mountains I was good to me and I was good to the mountains for 30 years, but you know, by the time I finished there, I'm well and truly over it. I just needed to open a new door, a new, new window, whatever it was. And it became very... Um, there was only one road in and one road out of the Blue Mountains. We were you know, halfway up the mountain there and... Uh, it just gets I don't know, irritating, especially as they were doing roadworks for the entire thirty years that right. I was there. You know, starting with the M4, and then they you know moved up the mountain slowly and took away the Woodford Bends, and then they started to try and get an extra lane here and an extra lane there. It was just a nightmare. I, I guess with work as well, you were travelling quite regularly between. Sydney oh and yes, the yes. Mm. Although when I was doing the big shows, I was more or less living in town somewhere right. rather than. Um, coming back there every night except when I did the revival of Rocky Horror Show and uh, Harry paid for a hire car to pick me up every day and take me home every night. That's pretty impressive. Well it was impressive yes except you one of those people has to talk to taxi drivers or people who are doing something for you like driving you or it becomes a bit of a chore. You can't. Oh, just... absolutely. I just want to sit in there and be, be taken somewhere. Yeah well, I do too but I feel I'm obliged to um, Yes, you know, not be up yourself. Yeah, that's, <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess that's one way of putting it. But it depends on the driver, I guess. I mean, I Uber a lot nowadays, and there are mm. some who are up for a great chat, and yeah. others who. I don't mind. It's just when you're doing it night after night after night. Yeah, you know, it does become... and it's a long hour and a half, mm. and you think, oh. Well. 
But mostly I would stay, when I was doing the big shows, I'd stay in a hotel or something, you know, some accommodation provided. So Southern Highlands, you're obviously attracted to a bit of space and a cooler climate? I mean, cause well, it's not, the climate's not... very much like the Blue Mountains. Yes, I was basically. Say it's not that different. You know, I, I wasn't uh, seeking to travel north and find the sunshine. You know, up in not... Noosa or something. Yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Port Stephens is where a lot of them end up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't want to do that, but I, I, was, I was mindful of, of the same sort of vegetation and and certainly the the seasons that are clearly marked. So that's where we are. Well, it's fabulous to talk to you on uh, on my podcast. Thank yeah. You, thank you for joining us. Yeah. I, I've just finished your second memoirs, uh, which has a fabulous title. Mm, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't. <laughs> well, well, you hadn't started no. stages when I decided on the title of the book. Well, I think, I, look, it's a, I I've got to have it a go. I'm just uh, saying, isn't it bizarre that we both come up with stages yeah. as the title of, of the podcast and the memoirs? Well, I think it it states very clearly what what's going on. Yeah, you know, we're talking about stages in the theatre, and you know, and also stages of life. And stages of yeah. life. Yeah. And I thought, well, I could be more pretentious, but then it would be very apparent that it was pretentious. So I thought, look, it's stages, and they wanted a the publishers wanted. Um, uh, a, a subtitle and I couldn't think of anything I said look it's just a bloody memoir let's just call it a memoir so they agreed to that because your first one was Chapters and Chances yes yeah, yeah. which again uh, indicates um, well, I guess it's like a theatre program wasn't it it was modelled on a theatre program it was yeah. a great big souvenir program mm. yes um, mm. lovely book it's a beautiful book. Yeah, lovely, lovely. And I did manage to track it down on eBay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of. Well, I only said that because so many people, you know, with whom I've been in contact in the theatre and wanted to get hold of the book or they went searching and, and that was the only uh, option for them really was to try eBay and they all got it and, you know, I thought, oh, well, that's good. I'll suggest it to you and... Uh, I found it. Yeah, because it you know, went out of print or whatever a long time ago. But Memoirs, uh, Stages, your second mm. is still in print and... It's a, well, it was only released last year, wasn't it? It was only, yeah, November. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it's out of print or... <laughs> no. no. It's not out of print. I, I have no idea how it's going because uh, once it was uh, released, there was a big uh, hold-up, a hiatus of some sort to do with... Um, they were relocating their... You know, the where, where they stored the books and who yep. was going to uh, send them out and uh, distribute them and all that sort of stuff. So the, for about two weeks, it wasn't available at all. And uh, I got an email from some person who went into Dimmicks and they said, oh, no, we haven't got that. Oh, no, you know, maybe a couple of weeks would take to get it in. And she wasn't very happy. So I told the the, um, the publishers, and that's how I found out that, in fact, Harper Collins were now handling the distri- distribution. And that's just here in uh, Mittagong. So I was able to get books for the two-barrel bookshops, yeah. you know, just nudge them along a bit. Well, it chronicles a wonderful life in the theatre, and uh, for any fan or somebody who's just interested in the theatre, it is the uh, the perfect read. So uh, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to quote a little bit from it today yeah. during a conversation mm-hmm. and get you to respond. Uh, you say in in that memoir, um, I've experienced most areas of theatre. I've worked backstage, been the understudy, been the star, written the words, designed the scenery, sometimes even painted it. I've accumulated knowledge and understanding of what goes on in my workplace and have great appreciation and respect for those who execute it earnestly and with enthusiasm. But I'm very aware that the sheer fun has basically gone out of this job for me. It is a job. Well, that's right, it is. I has can't... it always been a job? <clears throat> oh, I think... No, I, I... 
Well, what else is it? I mean, it's a career. Mm. It's a career. It's a pursuit. Um, but, you know, once you start getting involved in... Um, once you start doing well, and once you start getting involved in long-running shows, it becomes very difficult to maintain uh, your interest and uh, your enthusiasm. Um, but I've always tried to find something each day that's different or that keeps me going. But in the end, it comes down to it being a job. And it is a job which overflows into your external hours as well. I mean, as fame becomes you, mm. um, you've got the adoration of fans who sort of want a selfie or an autograph or mm. want to mm. come up and say hello in a restaurant and all that sort of thing. So Yeah, there's all of that part of it. But I, yeah, look, I don't mind that so much. Right. Um, way back in the days when I was um, doing... Betty Blockbuster and I, I amassed a fan base of um, enthusiastic young ladies who would be at that show so often, always in the same seats, usually in the front row. And I got very self-conscious because I, I thought, I, I, I don't know what they're expecting. You know, why, why, why would you come night after night after night? And am, am I supposed to be offering more and more and more and more? And I'm probably feeling I've got less and less and less to give. Well, there was and, one of those fans who did want more and more, mm, wasn't there? Mm. You, had a, you had a stalker. What was that like? Well, that was shocking because... <laughs> well, it was shocking. I, it, it was like playing Misty for me. Yeah, yeah. It was... Um, I didn't know who it was. Um, you know, it started off as a sort of... Her car stalking me. And, you know, as I come out the stage door at night after having had a few drinks in the dressing room, you know, and Mary and I, we'd all come out and, and suddenly this car would roar up the street and you, you couldn't see who was driving it or what it was about and, and didn't take too much notice of it until it occurred about four or five times, always at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Um, and then eventually, you know, she was stalking me and following me to my house when I was living up in the, the peninsula in Sydney and I didn't know that was going on until one night. You know, I was lingering at my front gate and uh, the, this car roared up the street, you know, and then it roared back down again and I suddenly put two and two together. And um, and then one day she left, there was some builders uh, going on, some works going on on my property and there was a pile of sand outside and she stuck a rose into this pile of sand. So that's what I found when I came out the next morning. So then I started to think, well, she could be anywhere around the house, you know, peering in. So I started to pull the blinds, which was not characteristic at all. Um, and then finally, uh, it, it was suggested that maybe we should get the police onto it because it really was unnerving me. And uh, so they... You know, we arranged a, uh, a a rendezvous. She she sent me a note saying, "I suppose after all this time, you must be very intrigued to meet me," which was the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> I assure you. So um, we'd spoken to the police, and they said, "Well, look, you know, you you come out there, and uh, and when she gets out of her car, and uh, if you say it's her, just nod, and we'll be on the other side of the street in our car." So. It was a very naked city, you know, this, yes. this story, this city has eight million stories and mine yes. was one of them. So, what if you'd forgotten to nod? Well, exactly. No, no, I did not <laughs> like that. And uh, no, no, I just took off, but, uh, and that was the end of it. But they, So they arrested her? No, they didn't arrest no. her, they just cautioned her and they right. spoke to her and she was the wife of a taxi driver who worked a lot at nights and so he, he was not at home and um, she just decided that I was fair game. But I'd never, she wasn't one of those who sat in the front row. She was right. lurking back there in the dark somewhere. And I, so I had no idea. 
That's obsessive behaviour. Oh, it was. And then I, then that, that stopped and then we took the show to Melbourne and uh, it happened again. At one stage, because I used to stay at the Windsor Hotel, so I was walking from the Madge to the Windsor Hotel one night and I saw this car and and the person in it I recognised and I thought, oh my Same God. Same stalker. Same stalker. Oh. And uh, so for two weeks... She was there, you know, with the window wound down or and, and sliding back in her, her chair. And I thought, you know, in any moment there'll be a, a machine gun will come out and bang, 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 and I'm gone. But um, after two weeks, never saw her again. And so that was obviously just a holiday, a two weeks in Melbourne yes. holiday for the purpose of stalking me. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. But so it wasn't, no, it wasn't very nice. But mostly the fans, you know, they're they're good people and uh, they really do care for you and care about you. Well, you've obviously touched their lives somehow. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. that's the thing, but you that's don't know that. Yeah. You don't really know what impact you're having. And um, I was in those those days in my one-man shows, I was obviously impacting on a lot of people. Well, certainly some considerable impact because people still talk about it today. Well, they do, they shows, do. Yeah. But, but it's the ones who say, you know, you changed my life or mm. you did something for me and, and you're thinking, well, I don't know. Because you, you know, you, you don't you, set out to it. No, 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 you don't. You can, you yeah. concoct a show, yeah. and that's really what was a, a very much a concoction of, of things that I I was given an opportunity to to do this one man show, and so everything I did was more or less influenced by all the things that had influenced and touched me as a theatre goer during my my life up until that stage. And so, uh, you know, even the fact that it had had the impact that it had as a, as a theatrical event was a surprise to us because we'd put the thing together and uh, it just had a, a very happy outcome. And, and, and from all accounts, um, an outcome that never, hasn't been replicated or hadn't been seen quite like that before. So, you know, what do you do? Just do your show. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's a dreamer, everybody's a star, everybody's in movies, it doesn't matter who you are, there are stars in every city, in every house and on every street, if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, their names are written in concrete, don't step on Greta Garbo. As you walk down the boulevard She looks so weak and fragile That's why she tried to be so wild But they turned her into a princess And set her on a throne But she turned her back on stardom Cause she wanted to be alone Parramatta, you grew up. Yes, I did. Well, I, I was born in Parramatta. Right, okay. Yeah, so. So I was uh, in, in the uh, just before the war, the Second World War. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you clarified. Yes, that, yeah. I have to. Really. It wasn't the <laughs> Vietnam War or the War of Independence. Um, so in those early days, you know, when my father was involved with the army, and uh, my mother, her family was in Parramatta, and uh, my father's family was in in Bankstown, and so I was sort of, you know, trotting between those households quite a bit. And at one stage, I lived with. Um, my paternal grandparents uh, for a couple of years because my mother was quite young when she married and then she had another child, my sister, and she just couldn't cope really. And so they 
decided that they would look after me. And so I was there for two years. I mean, and they, they were a great family, you know. I got a lot of my uh, get up and go from them, I think, in terms of um, wanting to be a performer. So at a very early age, you know, by, by the age five, I would already have known what I wanted to do with my life. Not quite sure how it was ever going to happen or resolve itself. But uh, because they were all, my father had five sisters and they were all very outgoing girls and they used to sing, not professionally. Uh, I think a couple did sing on the radio once or twice. But uh, they, just for their own entertainment, they would you know, burst into song and uh, I was always part of it. And then they were very encouraging, you know, because they could see that I wanted to get up and do something and and so it became just a, a perfectly natural thing for me to do and also it was enjoyable well at an impressionable age also i guess you're you're being lured into that the, the seduct, seduction of the applause the the response from an audience yeah i guess so yeah. Yeah, yes which is very powerful yeah it is and you know if you can find a job or something to yes. do with your life that yeah. is enjoyable um, and makes I could see that everybody was happy. The people who were performing, you know, my, my aunts, they were all happy. I was happy. The, you know, the indulgent grandparents, they were all happy. And so it just went went smoothly, really, from the the word go, because there was always somebody around who aided and abetted my desire to. Uh, my my appreciation really of, of things theatrical so uh, what happens to you then as a five-year-old that that's showing these this promising talent uh, do you start dance classes do you join the local amateur company no not at no? that stage no. no not at all but you had a teacher didn't you I did yeah really but that, that was a bit later, a bit later. I, but before that I was um, my father was managing the Cremorne North Sydney Orpheum Picture Theatres and uh, so we'd all go up as a family every Friday night and see a movie of some sort and I'm sure there would be a lot of musicals there. Um, and uh, then also he was doing the publicity for the Moss Musical Society. So uh, at about age nine perhaps I was... Um, used to go and see the the old musicals. Right, uh, the MGM. Oh, musicals. well, you know, all, you know the old ones. I mean... Yeah. Bell of New York, The yep. Geisha Girl, Country Girl, yep. you know, all of those. New yep. Moon, yep. <laughs> Victoria and her Hussar. <laughs> but they were all very instrumental in the sort of performer that I became because I could identify with the, the man who was the, the, the comic, the, you know, the regular comedian with the Moss and Mule Society, George Brown. So obviously I saw myself doing that one day, you know, the sort of job he had. And... Um, I was obviously I was taken to pantomimes at the Tivoli um, at an early age, and then um, when you talk about the teacher, that was Joanne Stowe, and she was a teacher at the preparatory school at Knox Grammar, where I went for my secondary education. And, and I was at the upper school, and she was at the uh, preparatory school. And we used to travel on the St Leonard's bus, uh, the one four four, to St Leonard's station, and get on the train, and then. Isn't go it amazing how, how you can still remember that bus number? Um, it's like. Uh um, relatives' phone numbers from my youth. I can still recall my grandfather's yeah. phone number and various aunts and things. Yes. Um, the days before mobiles when you didn't have to remember numbers. <laughs> like I can remember the phone number of the Empire Theatre, MA1000. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, I did it for five or six years, got on that same old bus, so I was certainly going to remember 144. Mm. Um, anyway, she became very much a mentor for me and made a lot possible 
she could see that the school the school didn't have a drama club in those days. And um, but she took you to the theatre, didn't she? Yes, she took me to oh. the theatre. So every, everything else, she took me to the, the plays at the Theatre Royal, the musicals up there at the Empire, and later Her Majesty's became um, ballet and, and you know um, Stratford. Uh, Pon Avon Company and the old Vic Company who came out and performed at the Tivoli Theatre. So I saw, you know, Robert Helpman and Catherine Hepburn doing their thing. And and the Borovansky. And oh, and the Borovansky yeah. was very important, yeah. very important. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that. Yes, I got my hit of the ballet. I loved, I loved the ballet. Yeah. Yes. What, what is it about the ballet that uh Oh, I suppose it's through you. the music, really. Hmm. I think I got into a lot of music through the ballet. Hmm. Um, and and you know it's, it's obviously a creative expression. I di- I didn't realise just how much of a how difficult it would be if you really wanted to do it properly. Uh, and I did t- take some lessons eventually, but I I knew that it was too late for me. I was already in my head um, going to be an actor, and uh, so that's what I chose to do. But I've always had a, a a penchant for dancing, and so when the you know when my opportunities for musicals came along uh, it wasn't although I didn't have any great technique at my disposal uh, I just did these things because I thought I have to the same as singing you know I didn't have any singing lessons and wish I had but uh, I just did it and people put up with it so <laughs> you know what I mean well memory is a funny thing I was talking to somebody the other day who was describing one of your shows and they, they talked about you dancing on point mm. is that true did you yeah, yeah I did yeah yeah, yeah yes well, I had to. I mean, it, well, it was the uh, my Vaseline amyl nitrate, who was my Australian rules um, ballerina, yeah. uh, and uh, it was filled. This uh, sketch was filled with um, foul language, basically. So I had to do something that um, was going to match that. Well, made it sort of all right mm. that if I could swear like a trooper and then I could dance like a. a, a you know, a ballerina on my toes, and something was was right about about it, because the sketch was really about um, it was um, inspired by the conversation that used to go on quite frequently about which was uh, the 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 toughest uh, line of work for um, for men, either a footballer or a ballet dancer, and my assumption was that it was was quite difficult really to be a dancer, much more difficult than to be a well, I'm not sure whether it was a publicity stunt or whether he actually did it regularly, but um, Ron Barassi, uh, the AFL coach down VFL then down in uh, Victoria, uh, had Robert Helpman teach the uh, his team and do do a class with them. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So and I had seen a man uh, in drag on his toes when I was a child when the the uh, New Zealand. Um, Concert group, the wartime concert group came to Australia. The Kiwis, a panto dame, or no, 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 he wasn't a panto dame, but he was a female impersonator. John Hunter was his name, and he did a a number on his toes. So I must have thought in my mind that it's possible to do it, even though it hurt like (laughs) buckery. But you know, it it was necessary to do it. Yeah. Could we talk about your teacher Joanne Stowe again? Mm. In your memoir, you described a very poignant moment the last time. You, you locked eyes. Mm, mm. Can you tell me about that? Well, yes, because I, I didn't see so much of her. You know, once I left school uh, and started to rock along with, you know, with my career and things that I wanted to do, it was, um, it was a shame that I didn't keep up the association as much as I would like to have. 
But when I was uh, performing in Barnum at the, uh, the Regent Theatre, one afternoon at the matinee, I remember coming down for my bow. And um, as I, you know, I, I could see the people in the front row, obviously, and then I also noticed there was a lady standing at the end of the front row. She hadn't been sitting there, but she'd come down the aisle and she had a rose and she sort of threw it at me at, up onto the stage. And, and that was Joanne Stowe. And it was a... Uh, a bittersweet moment, really, you know, it was like, oh my God, she wouldn't hang around the stage door or didn't do anything like that. I never saw her again, really. And I was sad, you know, and I felt like, like even now, I just think, oh, was, was I ungrateful as a, as a young man? I, I was very grateful for what she did for me and what she made possible for me. Uh, but I think, I think as teachers, we, you know, students come into our lives and and then we we lose touch for the rest of our lives again. Yeah. But but if you can see them succeed, I mean that's all the gratification you need. That, I guess so. I guess so. And she probably didn't expect any more than no, that no. anyway. I think she saw you, you know, at your prime there. Yes. Or one of your primes. One of my primes. Yeah. My prime time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, she could see that I'd done what I wanted to do, and she mm. said to me early on, you know, she I always knew you'd be an actor, and I don't know whether anybody else did, but <laughs> see it that way. Um, except obviously my adoring relatives, they must have. But also exposed you to entertainments that were going to later on inform your work, you know, like the ballet, mm. Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. Yeah, all of those things. Um, the classical theatre, yeah. And you know, that was another um, gift too, was the fact that when the Gilbert and Sullivan uh, opera company, the Doily Cart, used to come to the perform at the Empire, I keep saying the Empire because it was the Empire Theatre where Her Majesty's was later, uh, you know, refurbishing uh, for My Fair Lady when that first came to Australia. So they reduced the Empire's seating capacity, which was 2,500 to 1,800, but that allowed them to get a foyer because there was no foyer of any consequence at the Empire Theatre. And also a bar. So uh, anyway, I used to go to the Empire because my father knew Bob Nash, who was the manager of the Empire Theatre, and he used to slip me in at the back stall you know, every week, every Saturday, if I wanted any, you know, once a week or... Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how I soaked all of that up too and saw Ivan Menzies, who was the comedian of the, the company. And, uh, you know, obviously I felt that's something I would like to be able to do. He quickly became my first serious theatrical role model, performing all the comedy roles. Mm, mm, he did, he did. Because my um, my grandfather, my mother's father's second wife, um, who I call Auntie Barbara, she took me to the opening night of the Mikado at the Empire Theatre of one of those seasons, 1950, I think it was. And I was just swept away. The show itself was just wonderful. It was right up my street. I... I got all the humour and I could, you know, I was, felt really one of the, the, the audience because we were all laughing at the same sorts of things, you know, the adults and, and lucky me. And uh, Ivan Menzies had just this, he was, you know, magnetism about him and a great rapport with the people in the auditorium, the audience. And, and obviously I took note of that and um, knew of the, I, f I discovered the possibilities of a, of a rapport, of a communion between um, um, an audience member and a performer on the stage, which I've used to my advantage, I guess. And what about a, a performer like Evelyn Gardner, who did the, mm. the catheter roles yeah, well, yes. and all of those? Well, she was, uh, I mean, she was almost a caricature 
I'm not being unkind, but she was a she was in the mould of she was the sort of uh, lady playing those mature roles, uh, you know the the Catishes and the Little Buttercups and things that I saw as a like a, Margaret de Mont in the yes the yes yes days, yeah, yeah. They, she was there all the time doing those roles and I that's how I always saw. Um, the, the you know the fairy queen and Iolanthe, but she was a big woman and she you know her voice was sort of going, but it was still impressive. <laughs> but you know I'd never even later on I did a, a, appeared in Iolanthe for the Victoria State Opera, and the fairy queen was Rhonda Birchmore, <laughs> and, and she was tap dancing and she was doing all those sort of things, and I thought. Well, Evelyn <laughs> could, couldn't never, have, do could never do that. No, but ah, uh, uh, yes. So your your training uh, has started very much in your youth by observing mm, you know, mm. the, the ballet, Gilbert and Sullivan, classical theatre. I guess it continues with the Philip Street Theatre. Tell us about that. Yes, did, well, I was going to the there? Independent Theatre just before while oh, right. while I was still in my secondary stages, and that was because uh, Joanne introduced me to the the classes at the independence so this was a co-curricular experience was it after school yes 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 and so during that period i uh which lasted all the way through to i left school i would sometimes appear in things there you know in the kids uh saturday afternoon kids shows or get a small role in one of the, the you know wednesday to saturday night shows sometimes i would be backstage um um, and I would always be there when Paul Kastner was painting the sets. So you know, he we I I don't know how late that was in at, at night, but I was always there. And he was always playing Gilbert and Sullivan, and so I was watching him paint the scenery. And it was a great experience. So I was learning a lot. I was learning such a lot. So he was a great uh, scenic artist. Yes, he? yes. He had a big backdrop. Yes, he did yeah. all of that. And um, later on, he worked for Scenic Studios in Melbourne right. when they you know were still operating the back of the match and so then to, at the end of uh, all of that I uh, I started to that's when Hayes Gordon uh, was uh, about he uh, he started giving um, classes at the Saturday afternoon workshop at the independent theatre um, I had been a member of the workshop but I then got myself this job at the Philip Street Theatre where I was not available on Saturdays to go to these classes. So I knew that I wanted to because all of my mates were going to him and they were just talking about how mesmerising he was and you know how different he was and the, the way he talked about theatre and they talked about acting and, and, and what was involved. And, and I thought, gee, gee, I wish I could be doing this. So A lot of that was based on the method, am I correct? Well, that's what that's they called what it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They called it, they so called method actors. But mm. really, it is basically a method of teaching. Mm. So, uh, to, and it's uh, up to the actor to ultimately take on board what works for them. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you use what is useful. And, mm. and, um, but but the Philip Street Theatre, of course, was an, a great great opportunity for me because I was there initially understudying um, Barry Humphries and Gordon Chater and Max Holdacre, and then later on I got into the next show as a performer in that show, and it was a, a theatre that offered opportunities to very unusual talents, Ruth Cracknell, June Salter, Lyle O'Hara, Gloria Dawn, unique, unique people. I mean, no doubt about them. You know, they, they, they weren't to be seen elsewhere because 
other people didn't employ them, like J.C. Williamson's didn't employ them, mm. but they all had something vital to offer the theatre, and particularly that style of um, performance, you know, the intimate review. So I was very lucky there again. So Philip Street Theatre was really intimate review yes. type, type yeah. entertainment. Yes, yeah. What do you... I mean, Max Oldacre, of course, one of our great character men, worked with Gladys Moncrief. He did, yes, yeah, he did. Yeah. So um, I didn't ever, ever have to go on stage for him. No. <laughs> but I did have to go on for Gordon Shater for a couple of nights, and uh, uh, that was a great experience. And Humphreys as well. What, what do you learn as a young actor uh, watching those guys? I mean, are they yet to still develop their own personas with Edna and... Yeah, well, I, I think he... Uh, Barry had already introduced Edna... Uh, but but she wasn't you know what she became, what she still is, and um, and Gordon was the great because uh, I'd seen him in a couple of English comedies you know like Seagulls Over Sorrento and so he came out as a, yeah, a he, an English actor yeah and for, the, for the J C right. Williamsons yeah. yeah anyway he stayed in Australia and then you know for those intimate reviews he was always doing these what they were called point numbers which were monologues basically as you know either sung or spoken, but he was a great sort of character actor and another role model, really. Like, you know, you have to f- slot yourself in into the theatre where you think you belong, and sometimes it takes quite a while to find your feet. But I was lucky that all through my life I was able to see these role models that, that um, were going to influence me and the sort of performer I became. What about the teachers like Doris Fitton at The Independent? Mm. What did Doris teach you? Well, I was very mindful that she was very, she enunciated very clearly. <laughs> and and uh, oh, we all used to imitate her. It was shocking, really, but she was easily imitatable. Um, I think the thing I remember her telling me, uh, trying to impress upon me most, was that when you went on stage, you always entered on your upstage foot. Oh, right. Which meant that you, your body was always open to the auditorium. And if you go on with your downstage foot, your back is going to be the first thing they see. So I always was very mindful of that. I may even have decided eventually that I would go on with my downstage foot because I felt free to do so. But uh, I was also very to Marina. She was another teacher there. And, um, you know, I suppose there were... I don't really remember what, what, what it was we did, really. Must, we must have had scripts to read. We must have um, had scenes to do. But they're great theatrical personalities, aren't they? Oh, they, that, yes. That, that figure mm. loom large. Uh, mm. And then you could times. see them performing mm. in some of the shows at night oh. as well. So they, they, they weren't only just telling you how to do it, they were doing it, which was um, rewarding. And your time at the ensemble, you were there from the ground floor, really, when it was mm. becoming a yes. company? Yeah. Yes, well, we started, uh, um, as I said, I couldn't go to the Saturday afternoon classes at the theater, independent theatre workshop that Hayes was giving. But when that uh, his little obligation to the independent was over, he started uh, giving lessons in his uh, living room just around the corner from the theatre in Ridge Street, North Sydney. And so I was able to go there because on Sundays I didn't work at the Phillips Street Theatre. So I was doing that, we were all doing it for about, John Ewing was there, Don Reed was there, Lorraine Bailey, lots of people really, lots of folk that um, went on to you know, make a name for themselves. Um, they, uh, eventually Hayes 
there was so much interest in what we were doing. You know, the method actors over there, those mad method actors. Uh, uh, so Hayes thought that what might be a good idea to have a showcase one one evening so that people could actually see what, what we'd been on about or what what was the result of our training with, with Hayes Gordon. So he uh, hired the Camaray Children's Library and um, it was just a big square space with lots of chairs for kids. So he, he decided that he would set them um, set up a situation which was theatre in the round because that was the most convenient thing and, and useful thing to do in that space. So that's how we started the Ensemble Theatre in the round. So we did two Sunday nights and people came along and we did a series of uh, one-act Tennessee Williams plays and uh, everybody was most impressed because it was quite intense, you know, what what we were doing. You know, we, we, our role models were Marlon Brando and <laughs> James Dean and Geraldine Page and all of those sorts of people. So we wanted to see ourselves in the same uh, light. So you're doing uh, 33 bales of cotton, is it? Was it? Is that the one, one of the 27, yeah, 27, yeah, 27 yeah. wagons full of cotton. Uh, Auto da Fe, oh, that was the one I did. Oh, Portrait of a Madonna was another one. But anyway, they were all heavy going. Mm. And, uh, but, but people responded well. So, so shortly thereafter, he wanted to try and find a space where he could establish this theatre. So there was a, um, an upstairs venue called the Theatre Institute, which was in North Sydney. And it was just a shocking little hole, really, a fire trap. And, you know, he found some old theatre seating somewhere and... That's where we uh, started our performances with the uh, the one act plays to begin with. Then uh, the man, I think that was the the first full scale play with with um, John Ewing and Lorraine Bailey and Clarissa Kay, and that knocked people's heads off. I mean, it was scary. It was frightening. John was just sort of like terrifying, especially if you were sitting two feet from him and he's holding a knife. You know, people were just scared out of their minds. Well, I guess audiences had only been exposed to, exposed to those J.C. Williamson imports, English drawing room comedies. Yeah, and, yes. Um, there were a few dramas, you know, a few deep blue seas occasionally, but, right. but, but they were all drawing room comedies mostly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's... And then, then I went off to England and uh, for a year and... Uh, while I was there, Hayes had found the boat shed down there at uh, Kirribilli, and they all started to work on it and to, to turn it into a, th- a proper theatre. So England was just a gap year, or did you go off to attempt to... Oh, I did go off to think, thinking that I might... To do a Peter Finch. <laughs> I don't know whether I used him <laughs> as, a, as a, an example or not. Um, I did go off to audition for uh, Stratford, because I was those, in those days, I thought I was going to be another Laurence Olivier, and uh, make my my career in in the theatre doing the, the the Shakespearean roles. But I, you know, I passed one. And I got a call back, and but it, you know, it never amounted to anything. And I got into a a musical, the two of the provinces called Bless the Bride as a dancer, uh, <laughs> and uh, spent five months doing that while I was there. So I was only away for a year, but I realised that the, the pull of the ensemble theatre was very strong for me, and also my family and Australia. Mm. And uh, I woke up to the fact that if I was going to do anything over there in, in England, then I would have to do no. something about my speaking voice, which was pretty good anyway. Yeah. But uh, well, you just do Doris. I could have just done Doris. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, oh, yeah. So I came home again, back to the Ensemble Theatre, and spent a few years there. Yeah. We've um, we've had such a, a rich theatre heritage in in Sydney. I'm sure all the major cities I, I know, but but we've lost a lot of those great buildings, haven't we? Through mm, development, mm, and um, mm. that must cause a bit of heartbreak. Well, it, it, yes, it does. I mean, if if, if you're in the theatre and they're knocking down the venues, well, they're so, our churches, aren't they? Well, they, they are, yeah. you know, and and so the Theatre Royal that used to be. Uh, was was a place where I saw so much, and and was such an important um, institution for my, uh, you know, my my pursuit really, uh, and 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 the same with the the Empire, the same with the Tivoli. And uh, to think that they said a twenty eight hundred and more. Oh God, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, you know, it's a, uh, yes. So it's very sad, and and especially when they're not replaced. Well, I know that the the Madge, uh, you know, the Empire became Her Majesty, which burned down, and they replaced that, and then they knocked that one down. Uh, and then the Royal, which, which you know, the, the Royal, it's there and has been languishing for a couple of years now. That's no, it wasn't wasn't a patch on on the old Royal, which was a beautiful sort of Edwardian style theatre, really, the, the decoration and all of the the detail. Um, but we did get the Capitol yeah. back again. Yeah. And the state theatre's still there. And the, the state's still there, yeah. but it's not not used much. And it's got a, a hopeless stage, stage mm-hmm. yes, you know. You can't do anything there yeah. much. Radio drama, was that fun? Radio? Well... Yeah. <laughs> As an actor, I suppose, it causes you to focus on your vocal Well, it did, yeah, but... Skills. It, yes. No, I, look, I never thought very much about my, my voice anyway, so... And and all of those people were so practised. The other people who were gathered around the microphones, you know, they were so good. But don't we all hate the sound of our own voice? I suppose we do. Yeah. 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 Just depends how how much you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, you know, I, I was I, I could do you know I did a lot of uh, children's radio, ABC right. children's stuff, and so I was all right for that. But then. Um, well, I got an opportunity with the drama department of the ABC. I'd never actually auditioned for them, so I was quite perplexed as to how I was offered a job, except that I was doing children's radio and the Argonauts, I was sort of doing something there as well. Anyway, they were doing a production of The Five Finger Exercise, uh, and uh, I'd seen that play when I was in London, and I thought that part of The Young the Sun was just right up my alley, right up my alley. So um, I went along and, uh, you know, there were some of the stalwarts. There was Georgie Sterling and Stuart Ginn and um, Bob McDara all around the microphone doing this thing. So we did the, the first read-through and Dick Parry was the, the producer, I think they were called in those days. He came out of the, um, the control room and he said, well, you'll have to do better than that, boy. And I was absolutely shattered. I really was shattered. And so we had another read-through and I was they were all helping me as best they could. But I never had another odd job offer from the ABC drama department. Right. And it turns out that he didn't... He mistakenly booked me huh. uh, for somebody else. He, he, who else had a name like Reg Livermore? I don't know. But anyway, that's how I got the job. And uh, somebody else missed out on it because he just mixed up his uh, personalities. The musical stage, when did that come along? Was that Rocky Horror, the first...? Hair. Hair? Hair was? Yeah, hair. 
apart from the little musical interludes at the Phillips Street Theatre, um, Hair would have been the first big commercial musical I did. Did you originate that role of Claude, or did you go... No, 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 I, I played Burger, but I didn't... Burger. No, no, right. Keith Glass was the original Burger. But you'd, you'd gone along to see, see it, didn't I, you? Yeah, I'd and gone, you gone along to a... Looking a, down your nose a little bit at Oh, well, my musicals? sister was in it, so I went because of oh, her. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. She was, oh, so she did become a performer. Oh, yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah right. she did. She was playing Chrissy, the one who sang... Um, I knew a bloke called Frank Mills of mm. that song. Mm. Um, so I went along to this uh, preview, I guess it was, and had, and having looked down my nose at just the idea of it, just the thought of it, that all these kids who were not part of the theatre, not the traditional theatre... Yes, because Harry just um, employed a whole lot of hippies off the street. Well, Jim, Jim, chose, Jim, Jim right. Sharman chose them all, but, right. you know, they could all sing. Right. Most of them had a guitar... <laughs> and I think probably most of them smoke pot. <laughs> but I, I just had it was such a, 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 a overwhelming experience for me as a performer, who'd started to think that you know maybe my life was just going to be a, a series of ever decreasing circles. You know, you do a radio program, then you do something at the independent theatre, and then it's you know go the rounds one more time. And but here was a piece of theatre that was um, so. Um, in your face in terms of what what the show was about, what was an offer, how Jim had staged it, and how free it seemed to be. To me, that was, was what appealed to me most, was that, that there was a, an obvious opportunity to free yourself of all the restrictions and all the, 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 the rules you go by when you go into the theatre and how you perform. So were there opportunities for some improvisation? Well, they're, yeah, they're, as far as the blocking, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yes. Because yeah. Berger, you know, I eventually got to understudy him, right. and so I would, uh, and then I was allowed to go on for a Friday matinee, you know, at five o'clock on a Friday. That was the first time, and then eventually Jim decided that he would split the principals into two sets of the principals: the Claude, the Berger, and the Sheila. So I became with John Waters and Jenny Cullen. The second cast and um, the, um, Keith Glass and Wayne and Beres Marsh, they were the the principal cast. But we got a performance a week or sometimes two. That's extraordinary, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But it was good. It was yeah. good for the for the company and for us. Keeps it fresh. Yeah, mm. yeah. But now Keith Glass, he was the originator of the role out here. Tell me about the, the, the time a, a fellow came up on stage and started to do a striptease. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, we have, at the end of the performance, the audience was basically invited up onto the stage and we'd all been singing Let the Sun Shine In. And so the band would rave on and then the people would start dancing and we'd sort of either mingle amongst them or, or sit around the rostrums. I used to often sit on the rostrums so I didn't like to get down there, get dirty. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, you just knocked yourself out and then suddenly they were you know, dancing with the audience and you think, oh. But, but anyway, so one night one guy was came up onto the stage and, you know, I was sitting up there on the rostrum looking down and some, some of the others were also and he started to... Um, he undid his belt, you know, he's dancing, he's waving his arms around and... He, I think he took his shirt off first of all, he undid his buttons and he threw that away. And then he sort of 
pull his belt out and un- unbuckled that and then waved that around and threw it. And I think he was going for his pants, right. but I think somebody must have ushered him off or we all just looked away. I'm not too sure. Protect the innocent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was very freeing for the audience as well, you see. They, um, they relished the opportunity. So that sort of experience, you know, in the theatre on... As a, as a as a performer, it's something you don't forget, and um, the freedom that it offered, and then you know I had after that I had the superstar, yeah. nice sort of cameo in that, and then well uh, yes it is a cameo, but you turned it into a, a nine minute showstopper. I, I did, wasn't I naughty? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you spend most of the show in the dressing room, except for a three minute song. You start to think, there must be more I can do with this. <laughs> so I did, I used to add little bits. To meet you face to face Thanks, Frank. You've been getting quite a name. All about the place. Hello, Tiger. And Ralph. Healing the cripples. <laughs> and raising from the and now I understand your God. At least that's what you'll say. Unbelievable. Frank, I've been meaning to say something to you. Man cannot live by bread alone. Some of us prefer cake. So, if you are the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine, that's all you need to do, and I'll know it's all true. Come on, King of the Jews. In great admiration as you as an actor, you also understood that there has to be some sort of threat to Christ. Oh, that, God, yes. Menacing, really, yeah. yes. So you toy, I was toying with him, really. And so because of that, because of that attitude I, I brought with my performance, that led to things, you know, that led to me singing, you'll never get to heaven if you break my heart. Things like that, you know, yeah. just little before the song actually started. Yeah. And so um, I was very naughty, but, you know, I have been naughty in my life in the theatre, so... And I was going to get naughtier when I did the Rocky Horror Show, so... Yes. Can, what did you do in the dressing room when you weren't on as Herod? Oh, well, I was knitting a, a bed rug. Right. I was knitting squares, woolen squares, that eventually uh, I would sew together and um, use as a, as a blanket. I still have it. I still have the rug, 
and Lois Ramsey's mother was kind enough to crochet all around the edge of it so that it didn't fall apart. Um, but that's what I did. Your shroud. Yeah, they were all out there having fun, and, and you know, I'm... Mind you, I didn't have to get into the theatre till the interval, so that was pretty good. That oh, was pretty right. good, yeah. Put a bit of glitter on my cheeks, and away, away I went. <laughs> That was an outrageous performance, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, you needed a light touch in that show because yeah. everybody knew how it was going to end. Exactly. Mm. Well, you know, all the, all the great Shakespeare's. You know, we've got the Gravedigger in Hamlet and yes, that's the right. Porter in Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. The Tenardiers in Les Mis. We need a, mm, a bit mm. of light relief to cope with the, the heaviness. Yeah. Um, outrageous, you say, but you're about to get even more outrageous in the Rocky Horror Show. Well, I was because, that you know, at, at first... Um, I just couldn't believe my luck when, when Jim offered the role to me. I didn't know anything about the role. I didn't understand what was required. It didn't. The script didn't open up my eyes to, to the possibilities. And um, I think it was a matter of him teasing us, really, into the, the performances that we all eventually gave because I'd certainly gone overboard, but never to the extent that I did in the Rocky Horror Show. He directed in London, hadn't he? He had, had a production yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, and, then... and, and um, I don't know whether the LA one had happened at that stage or not. Right. Yes, he had. So he knew all about it. And so it was a matter of revealing slowly, like peeling an onion. You're taking away all the layers of an onion to get to the, the nitty-gritty of this thing. But uh, I thought that Frankenfurter was such a fabulous character that the audience needed to know more about him. So I decided that I would just add dialogue, which I did. Oh. So, you know, some nights it probably got 15 minutes of my own material in there. <laughs> just playing off the other actors. And, and, and there was the, the opportunity to, to communicate, go down into the audience. And um, and I suppose unbeknownst to you at that stage, I guess uh, Betty Blockbuster is germinating at that time mm, with, with the freedom mm. that, and the ad lib that you could do in Rocky Horror. Yeah, yeah, definitely, very definitely. Hair, superstar, then Rocky. They were the, 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 the stumbling, not the stumbling blocks, but the foundation stones mm. um, for, for where I was eventually heading. But I didn't know that at the time. I was astounded to read also that it wasn't until much later that you watched the film with Tim Curry mm. and realised it was such a different performance to yours. Cause you, you, well, he you, was beautiful. He was beautiful. You'd based yours on... Betty Davis. Betty Davis, yeah. I think I had Joan Crawford lips at one stage. I mean, I was absolutely... Oh, God, I was awful. Hideous. But, once again, you know, this was another role that had to be threatening. You know? Yes, it, yes. It, and um, 
So I did it the only way I knew how, or the way that I that got me into the character was was the the Betty Davis attitude, you know, the, the stance and the, even the uh, the, ryth- the rhythmic the way she spoke. Have you seen many productions since? No, because no. I feel it's become a very sanitised show now. It's very. I don't want to see it. No, 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 no. no. Whereas that original production, the the seedy, mm. dirty aesthetic, um, and being played in an old. Cinema, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it must have been heaven. Well, the cinema was certainly run down, the new art cinema. Yeah, clearly, but, but, but as an audience experience, that immersion, I suppose. Would, oh, yes, would you know, and all those ghouls that showed them to their seats and, you know, there were screams before the show started, they were frightened and, and, and then the, the, the actual show was it was very confronting and uh, Frankenfurter was very threatening to, the, to a lot of people, especially when I would get off the stage and come down and shake the shit out of them sometimes because they were laughing at me when they shouldn't have been, <laughs> well, according to you know, the way so I... To the character. Well, yes, yeah. you know, I was de- deadly serious and then sometimes they would just laugh at me. Because he really turns, doesn't he? Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, so all of that prepared me for dealing with uh, an audience, you know, on, on one-on-one, um, as I did in Betty Blockbuster and the other shows. Um We'll continue to talk about the musicals just for a bit, and we'll, yeah. we'll get on to those one-man shows. Uh, but, you know, the freedom that you're experiencing in Hair and Superstar and Rocky Horror, something that didn't happen in The Producers. No, it didn't. Well, you know, we were... Um, the the big, big American musicals are, are, are... They're a franchise, aren't they? They, they are, are really, and people come out from New York and... Their duty is to stage them as they were in New York, and they've got they've got a blueprint, and that's how they want them done. Because you know, obviously, in New York they do um, workshops, and they work very hard on getting a musical right, so that when it does hit the stage, if it's not going to be a bomb, it's going to be right. And so, if that uh, um, formula works there, it's got to work somewhere else. And so that that's really what you're confronted with is a series of creative people. Um, not not necessarily the original creators, but you know their their proxies or whatever it is, um, who come out and then just restage the show. And uh, if you're an actor who's at all adventurous or wanting to adventure, uh, it's a very stultifying and difficult experience. And that's what I found with the producers that I couldn't be me or find find my own way. Um, you just become a piece of you know, replica furniture, really. Well, you want to build your character organically, I suppose, don't you? Well, you so do. That you have ownership of it. Yes, I mean, yeah. you don't want to be you know, knowing that somebody took these exactly these steps or was standing in exactly this position in another production on the other side of the world, or that um, as the musical director who came out to do, you know, to, to tra- train us, you know, he uh, he made disparaging con- comments about. Tom Burlinson and myself, and how um, he, I remember he said to me, he said, um, I would do admire um, the way Nathan Lane can move so easily from, from the dialogue to into the, the song, you know, the, the seamless sort of transition that, that he could manage. And I, by that stage, I was well and truly pissed off. And I said, look, I don't think um, Tom or I need to be uh, reminded of the long shadows of... Um, Mr. Matthew Lane. Broderick and, and Nathan Lane. He said, oh, yes, very long shadow. He said mm. to me, look at me in the eyes, and I was so angry. It's extraordinary, but, isn't it? Yeah, anyone knows if you want the best, to get the best out of an actor, 
who are pretty vulnerable anyway, they have to be vulnerable mm. to, to cre do what they do. Um, you need to, to lead them gently through that rehearsal period, that construction period. You do, yeah. you know. And, and of course, when, when Mel Books arrived to see a couple of the previews before the opening night in Melbourne, uh, he, he saw immediately that I had been restrained and he was very, very angry and pissed off and apparently got, got stuck into these creatives. And then I had a one-on-one -on -one chat with him the next day, sitting in the, you know, the dress circle. And he, um, he really, he set me free because he said, look, you know, I, I want people to see you up there and say, that's Reg, we, you know, we love him. And he, he said, you're probably the Mel Brooks of Australia, aren't you? <laughs> I thought, no, not quite, not quite. But uh, but he knew exactly how to treat an actor and how to. Yeah, but he could that see that the yes, well, mm. what it, what was happening. He was waiting for the the show to fly, and it just wasn't doing that. I believe it also in in previews he said you're too straight. That was one of the <laughs> things you're too straight. Oh dear. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but an, another great. Um, a great notch to your theatrical belt, the producers. You're fantastic as Max Bialis doc. I can never, th I can never think of it that because way. Because it was such Be a, because it was a so time. yeah. Because yeah. it was cruel, really, and and, and because the enjoyment was denied me. Uh, I just thought that I was probably second rate. I just wasn't good enough. Was Barnum a good experience? Yeah, well, it was. I mean, what can I say about Barnum? Look, for an actor, it was um, a challenge because after about the first 15 minutes of that show, it suddenly becomes um, one musical number after the other. Uh, there's not much dialogue, there's not much character development. Um, it's great to watch, great to sit there in the auditorium and watch it, uh, as I did when I, I saw it in New York. With Jim Dale? With Jim Dale, yeah, and... Uh, I I loved watching it, but I didn't I didn't assess it enough to know that once I got on stage, I had you know my opening monologue and the scenes with the wife, and but then nothing happens really except one number after the other and push button. trick after trick. Yeah, mm. yes. Mm. And so I very quickly, well, I won't say I got bored, but I I just came to a brick wall. How do, how do you maintain? Well, yeah, if you are coming to a brick wall, how do you keep it fresh for the audience and for yourself every night? Well, who knows what, what, who knows <laughs> what, what to draw upon? What you yeah. go, go, yeah, go through ensuring that it is fresh. Because um, there's always something to find that will, will do that for you. But, you know, it's, it's not, you're not released enough, really, I think. And um, You went off to the Big Apple Circus School. I did, I did, and yeah. did a... a serious intensive training there well I, I learned to walk the wire which I did very well I could do that you know because of my dancing right. uh, experience you know and um, knowing about balance and, and and juggling was okay no juggling was hopeless right. I couldn't do that so how do you feel as an actor you know you know you're playing PT Barnum you think oh shit the next scene I've got to walk the tightrope I mean are you able to and sing at the same, and sing at the same, at the same time, time yeah. I mean does that, how does that affect your performance? If you know that's coming up, or I've got to juggle these balls. Oh, well, juggling the balls, that affected my performance. <laughs> so very often I, couldn't, I really couldn't do it. Well, you know, when I was in New York at the, the, the circus school, 
you know, I'd go back to the hotel room and I'd be there with these three balls trying to juggle them. And, you know, they'd be on the floor, they'd go and roll under the bed and I just got so annoyed with myself. But I just couldn't... Some days I did it, but not, not often. But the, the, the tightrope was easy, really. And I loved getting up there. And if you did fall off, well, you weren't going to break your neck, you know, because you, when you fall off the wire, you turn into it and you grab it with both hands. That's what you're supposed to do, and I did do that. But, you know, you'd find that just that the audience would be more delighted when you fell off, and then you got up and had to do it again, and then maybe fell off a second time. And each time they'd be sort of, you know, roaring and urging you on to, to get it right. But it never was it was never a moment of, uh, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. I loved it because I was able to do an arabesque on the wire, I was able to go down on one knee on the wire, all sorts of things that I'd never even contemplated. And your last arrival on stage, I think, for the just before the curtain call, I remember you flying in from the dress circle. On a, on like oh, from the roof. Yeah, from yeah. the roof, the yeah, roof yeah. yeah. Flying fox. <laughs> it might have looked like that. <laughs> that was extraordinary. Yes, especially in Adelaide, which was 18 flights of stairs up to the... So, you, of course, you had to travel up to the roof. Up to the roof. And, uh, and I was taking my costume off... As I ran up these stairs, my dresser was following me and we were putting on, you know, the red coat and, and the white pants and all of that sort of stuff. And then I'd get up to this lighting grid out the front and then come down the rope and land on the stage, which was thrilling. It, it, once you knew what you were doing, there was no danger in it, except the first time I did it, probably at a preview, I forgot to use the, the brake that's on the rope. There's oh, a, right. you know, yep. And I sort of, I could have broken my legs, actually, the way I landed, but I didn't, thank God. But I never did that again. But uh, it's funny, though, because, you know, when we, when we came to Sydney, when we were playing The Regent, we found a spot somewhere back in the, you know, the auditorium that I could take off from. And it was almost a straight line. It wasn't high enough. There's no sort of... Um, you know, angle. No, no so, angle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I just took off, and I just got slower and slower and slower until I was just left hanging right. in, in, <laughs> in 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 the middle, over the stall somewhere, unable to get, move forward, unable. Oh, like shit. Michael Darling or something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and then we went to Melbourne, and of course I I got up into the old Madge. Well, that's a rabbit warren getting up into the roof there. Ooh. Gee, you must have been fit. I was fit, yes, mm. I was. Mm. I was. I've always thought I was a bit of an athlete on the stage right. when I was doing you know, the, yeah, the things that were I was recognised for. Um, Bay York Lee came out to direct that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Was there any talk of you ever going to taking a show like Barnum to Broadway or the UK? No, never no. mentioned. Not no, in those no, days? No, not in those days. Shame, isn't it? Yeah. I'd love to have done that. Wouldn't that be great? Yes, yeah. yeah. She was wonderful to work for. Because she was, um, you know, unlike that experience later in my life with the producers, she was just so accommodating. She she changed things, uh, you know, not drastically because she still had a, a blueprint. But you know, a couple of things I suggested she acted on. And but she was an actor. She was a performer. She, she was. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, she did. Yeah. She did. Uh, she was very encouraging. Yeah. Uh, that great experience. Um, you talk about your athleticism. I think that was still evident in My Fair Lady recently with Alfred P. Doolittle and that Get Me to the Church on Time. Oh, you're, right. You're quite physical in that number. Yes, yeah. yeah. At, at uh, a, can, can we say how old you are? I'm 80, no. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that, that can you edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's in your book. It's in the book, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Well, you know, somebody will find out <laughs> somehow. 
Yeah. So how do you stay fit and agile in well, your late seventies then, when you you're doing eight shows a week? In well, you know what it's like. You, mm. you your body accustomed, gets accustomed to what is your required of it. Yep. Yeah, and uh, so that's how it happens. But I'm lucky that I have always been agile, and and so that's uh, that that's half the battle. Um, but you know, I, I always think the the producers pretty well did me in physically because of some of the things I was doing, throwing myself backwards over couches and um, getting up and down, you know. And then, you do, then you've got that 11 o'clock number betrayed. Yes, exactly, betrayed. yeah. Uh, it wasn't kind. Right? No, no, not really. No. Uh, so Henry Higgins, Alfred P. Doolittle, do, do you think we'll get a pickering from you one day? I don't know, really. Uh, you never know it, what's it, out there. Eliza, perhaps? Eli- <laughs> no. no. I don't know what's Mrs. out there. Higgins. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I don't know. What was it like revisiting that, I think it's one of the best musicals ever written, mm, mm. Uh, from those different angles as Higgins and as Doolittle? Well, oh, look... Um, you obviously know the text very well. You're going into it for a second time. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but Do, uh, Doolittle had never really interested me because I had been asked if I was interested in doing it on another occasion. And I thought, no. Maybe I just thought that... Maybe yeah. I thought I deserved more. I don't know. Maybe. But isn't he one of those great roles for a character man? Well, or? well, it is, yeah. as it turns out. But yeah. I didn't, I didn't see it that way, no. um, until the opportunity came to, you know, to front uh, Julie Andrews and convince her, because I don't like auditioning, because I'm I'm pretty bad at it, and so you know I I met her, but but she knew that I didn't really want to audition. So she didn't get much of a feeling about what sort of a, a performer I was. So um, John Frost, who was the uh, executive producer, he said, um, rang me and said, look, Julie said she doesn't really know very much about you and would you meet her again? <clears throat> I said, oh, yes, I'd be happy to come in. And, and he said, but would you read? And I thought, oh, well, nothing ventured, nothing won. So I went to this second uh, okay, you know, meeting with her, and she was, you know, she was a wonderful person, really. And there was no need to be scared of her, that's for sure. And she was eighty too. <coughs> oh, yes, she was. Yes, yes yeah. Directing it, yeah. And uh, but she, you know, she obviously she had a fair idea with her experience with my fair lady of what these characters should be like, and who, who the people should be to to play these characters. So I did read. We sat at a table. She was on one side and I was on the other and there was somebody else reading. And so it was a very informal, non-threatening uh, event. And, uh, you know, she was, she was talking about the the difficulties of, of, of knowing how the role has been played and um, who did it. And I thought, well, I'm no Stanley Holloway. And um, finally I said to her, I said, look, I said, Julie, this, this is what I do. I can tell you, I promise you, this is what I do. And if you choose me, I promise I will give you everything you require. No worries about that. I will. And so the next thing I know is, she didn't say that day, yeah. I get a phone call saying, you know, you're, you've been offered the role. So I knew I had a challenge, you know, ahead of me. And then it revealed itself, really, in all sorts of ways. Because we were able to bring ourselves to this production. Mm. She'd never done it before. Yeah. And so it wasn't the blueprint from New York. It was just us. We're all asked to put 
ourselves into um, the choreography. A lot of the choreography was what the girls and boys could do, you know, that might prove useful in a in a, in a chorus line like that, you know, with all different sorts of types of people and characters and. So it was the actual choreography was made up of, of all of those experiences and, and and the same with the performances. So that was the 60th anniversary production. It wasn't Moss Hart's production. It was Julie Andrews' it was, yes, experience. Yes, and exactly. It was, uh, but very much a, um, a, a re... Not a reimagining, but very much in the style of the original production, you know, using the original designs. Mm. And... Um, it was just the choreography wasn't the same, but uh, yeah, look, it was a fantastic experience, I must say. And I should have gone out on that one, really. <laughs> <laughs> Ventured into the art form yourself, the musical, in the creation of Ned Kelly. Mm. Would you like to see Ned Kelly performed again, presented, produced? Um, what I would like to see, it, I'd like to see it as a concert version. I would love to see that. I would love to, because um, I keep dickering with the, the lyrics and things, which were not really up to scratch, I, I don't think. Some of them were okay, but generally they weren't. But I think, you know, in the light of the the development of the musical theatre in Australia, that it would be um, timely for people to see that again. Not not as the stage production. It's it's very as I did it. You wrote, I, directed I wrote it, it and I designed. Did. Yes, yeah. I did. So it, it was a, a touch unwieldy. I have to tell you, um, you know, the the sets were big and it, it was a very spectacular occasion. There's no doubt about it. And played in Adelaide, didn't it? It did. Did it get beyond Adelaide? No. Oh, no, it went to Sydney. Right. It opened to dreadful notices in Adelaide. Um, sadly, it was just it was a terrible experience. <laughs> all that talent and all that waste, you know. And because you had a great cast, um, Geraldine Turner. Geraldine, yes. Death. What is death, Ned? It's the dying that matters how you stand there will you die in that hour like a Kelly dies at sunrise when they take you to the end of all your dreams put the cap on your head I want it. 
Doug Parkinson Doug was in Parkinson, it. Doug Parkinson, that's Nick Durbin was in it. Um, it, it and, and a lot of very talented people. There's no doubt about that. It was uh, controversial in, in that it was... Um, the, the, the worst review came from the woman who uh, was the reviewer for the ad- advertiser, Shirley Despoyer, affectionately called Shirley Destroyer, or non-affectionately called <laughs> Shirley Destroyer. But she was um, either on the board or a great supporter of um, the South Australian Opera, and she was absolutely pissed off that um, the Adelaide Festival Centre got so much money because it was very much an entrepreneurial arm of of the theatre in those days because it could mount its own shows and with its own money. And she just resented the fact that this show was touted as a $250,000 production and that the the opera company was, you know, lingering, <laughs> waiting for some money so that it could really fly but but that didn't happen and so she just just got stuck into it and you know it was it was a shame and so it really didn't have a great history um or even the possibility of a great history ahead of it because it wasn't making any money but we did go to sydney and i think it played for about eight eight nine weeks but then the money went out and so pulled the plug on it but i thought i thought i sensed that this climate was changing in sydney that people were more interested in it and that um, they weren't so affected by, you know, the, the personal stuff that was going on in the politics in Adelaide. But anyway, it's too late. I always wish we'd opened in Melbourne, really, where Ned, you know, belonged. But uh, we never got there. And where he um, he finished his time. And he finished his time, that's right, his last show. Uh, so I hope that one day somebody will come along and maybe say well let's try and just set up a concert version and I'll get stuck into the lyrics again and <laughs> for the umpteenth time and we'll it, it, be, it would be quite an occasion because people talk about it a lot they all people talk about it and they, they well, in the echelon of Australian musicals that's one yes it's a mm, forefront mm. all the time yeah. not a not a success but uh, an honorable failure Reg's second memoir, Stages, is now available from all good bookstores. It's a riveting read and I highly recommend it to fans of Reg and to anyone fascinated by a life in the theatre. Treat yourself also to Reg's official website, reglivermore.com, where you can access many of the wonderful performances and a variety of media. Join me for the next episode of Stages when we venture into the second part of my conversation with the great Reg Livermore. We discuss his series of groundbreaking one-man shows and all that matters to him as an artist. This has been another compelling episode of the award-winning podcast Stages. I'm Peter Ayers and thanks for listening. Gonna rob a bank, gonna rob a bank, gonna be a rich man someday. Gonna rob a bank, gonna rob a bank, live in the easy way. Gonna have more than I know how to use. Gonna rob a bank, rob a bank.